Chapter Fourteen of the Uncommercial Traveller. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adam Doughty. The Uncommercial Traveller by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fourteen. Chambers. Having occasion to transact some business with a solicitor who occupies a highly suicidal set of chambers in Gray's Inn. I afterwards took a turn in the large square of that stronghold of melancholy, reviewing, with congenial surroundings, my experiences of chambers. I began, as was natural, with the chambers I had just left. They were an upper set on a rotten staircase, with a mysterious bunk or bulkhead on the landing outside them, of a rather nautical and screw-collier-like appearance than otherwise, and painted an intense black. Many dusty years have passed since the appropriation of this Davy Jones's locker to any purpose, and during the whole period within the memory of living man it has been hasped and padlocked. I cannot quite satisfy my mind whether it was originally meant for the reception of coals, or bodies, or as a place of temporary security for the plunder looted by lawn dresses, but I incline to this last opinion. It was about breast-high, and usually serves as a bulk for defendants in reduced circumstances to lean against and ponder at, when they come on the hopeful errand of trying to make an arrangement without money, under which auspicious circumstances it mostly happens that the legal gentleman they want to see is much engaged, and they pervade the staircase for a considerable period. Against this opposing bulk, in the absurdest manner, the tomb-like outer door of the solicitor's chambers, which is also of an intense black, stands in dark ambush, half open, and half-shut, all day. The solicitor's apartments are three in number, consisting of a slice, a cell, and a wedge. The slice is assigned to the two clerks, the cell is occupied by the principal, and the wedge is devoted to stray papers, old game-baskets from the country, a washing-stand, and a model of a patent ship's caboose, which was exhibited in chancery at the commencement of the present century on an application for an injunction to restrain infringement. At about half-past nine on every weekday morning, the younger of the two clerks, who, I have reason to believe, leads the fashion at Pentonville in the articles of pipes and shirts, may be found knocking the dust out of his official door-key on the bunk or locker before mentioned, and so exceedingly subject to dust is his key, and so very retentive of that superfluity, that in exceptional summer weather, when a ray of sunlight has fallen on the locker in my presence, I have noticed its inexpressive countenance to be deeply marked by a kind of Brahma erysipelas, or smallpox. This set of chambers, as I have gradually discovered when I have had restless occasion to make inquiries or leave messages after office hours, is under the charge of a lady named Sweeney, in figure extremely like an old family umbrella, whose dwelling confronts a dead wall in a court off Gray's Inn Lane and who is usually fetched into the passage of that bower, when wanted, from some neighbouring home of industry, which has the curious property of imparting an inflammatory appearance to her visage. Mrs. Sweeney is one of the race of professed laundresses, and is the compiler of a remarkable manuscript volume entitled Mrs. Sweeney's Book, from which much curious statistical information may be gathered respecting the high prices and small uses of soda, soap, sand, firewood, and other such articles. I have created a legend in my mind, and consequently I believe it with the utmost pertinacity, that the late Mr. Sweeney was a ticket-porter under the Honourable Society of Gray's Inn, and that, in consideration of his long and valuable services, Mrs. Sweeney was appointed to her present post. For, 
though devoid of personal charms, I have observed this lady to exercise a fascination over the elderly ticket-porter mind, particularly under the gateway and in corners and entries, which I can only refer to her being one of the fraternity, yet not competing with it. All that need be said concerning this set of chambers is said, when I have added that it is in a large double house in Gray's Inn Square, very much out of repair, and that the outer portal is ornamented in a hideous manner with certain stone remains, which have the appearance of the dismembered bust, torso, and limbs of a petrified bencher. Indeed, I look upon Gray's Inn generally as one of the most depressing institutions in brick and mortar known to the children of men. Can anything be more dreary than its arid square, Sahara desert of the law, with the ugly old tile-topped tenements, the dirty windows, the bills to let, the doorposts inscribed like gravestones, the crazy gateway giving upon the filthy lane, the scowling, iron-barred prison-like passage into Verulam buildings, the mouldy, red-nosed ticket-porters with little coffin plates, and why, with aprons, the dry, hard, atomy-like appearance of the whole dust-heap. When my uncommercial travels tend to this dismal spot, my comfort is its rickety state. Imagination gloats over the fullness of time, when the staircases shall have quite tumbled down. They are daily wearing into an ill-savoured powder, but have not quite tumbled down yet, when the last old prolix bencher all of the olden time shall have been got out of an upper window by means of a fire-ladder, and carried off to the Holborn Union when the last clerk shall have engrossed the last parchment behind the last splash on the last of the mud-stained windows, which, all through the miry year, are pilloried out of recognition in Gray's Inn Lane. Then shall a squalid little trench, with rank grass and a pump in it, lying between the coffee-house and South Square, be wholly given up to cats and rats, and not, as now, have its empire divided between those animals and a few briefless bipeds, surely called to the bar by voices of deceiving spirits, seeing that they are wanted there by no mortal, who glance down with eyes better glazed than their casements from their dreary and lacklustre rooms. Then shall the way nor westward, now lying under a short grim colonnade, where in summer-time pounce flies from law-stationering windows into the eyes of laymen, be choked with rubbish, and happily become impassable. Then shall the gardens, where turf-trees and gravel, where a legal livery of black, run rank, and pilgrims go to Gorhambury to see Bacon's effigy as he sat, and not come here, which in truth they seldom do, to see where he walked. Then in a word, shall the old established vendor of periodicals sit alone in his little crib of a shop behind the Holborn Gate, like that lumbering Marius among the ruins of Carthage, who has sat heavy on a thousand million of similes. At one period of my uncommercial career I much frequented another set of chambers in Gray's Inn Square. They were what is familiarly called a top set, and all the eatables and drinkables introduced into them acquired a flavour of cock-loft. I have known an unopened Strasbourg pâté, fresh from Fortnum and Mason's, to draw in this cock-loft tone through its crockery dish, and become penetrated with cock-loft to the core of its inmost truffle in three-quarters of an hour. This, however, was not the most curious feature of those chambers. That, 
consisted in the profound conviction entertained by my esteemed friend Parkle, their tenant, that they were clean. Whether it was an inborn hallucination, or whether it was imparted to him by Mrs. Miggott, the laundress, I never could ascertain. But I believe he would have gone to the stake upon the question. Now, they were so dirty that I could take off the distinct impression of my figure on any article of furniture by merely lounging upon it for a few moments, and it used to be a private amusement of mine to print myself off, if I may use the expression, all over the rooms. It was the first large circulation I had. At other times I have accidentally shaken a window curtain while in animated conversation with Parkle, and struggling insects, which were certainly red, and were certainly not ladybirds, have dropped on the back of my hand. Yet Parkle lived in that top set years, bound body and soul to the superstition that they were clean. He used to say, when congratulated upon them, "'Well, they are not like chambers in one respect, you know. They are clean.' Concurrently, he had an idea, which he could never explain, that Mrs. Miggott was in some way connected with the church. When he was in particularly good spirits, he used to believe that a deceased uncle of hers had been a dean. When he was poorly and low, he believed that her brother had been a curate. I and Mrs. Miggott, she was a genteel woman, were on confidential terms, but I never knew her to commit herself to any distinct assertion on the subject. She merely claimed a proprietorship to the church, by looking when it was mentioned, as if the reference awakened the slumbering past, and were personal. It may have been his amiable confidence in Mrs. Miggott's better days that inspired my friend with this delusion respecting the chambers, but he never wavered in his fidelity to it for a moment, though he wallowed in dirt seven years. Two of the windows of these chambers looked down into the garden, and we have sat up there together many a summer evening, saying how pleasant it was, talking of many things. To my intimacy with that top set, I am indebted for three of my liveliest personal impressions of the loneliness of life in chambers. They shall follow here, in order, first, second, and third. First, my Gray's Inn friend, on a time, hurt one of his legs, and it became seriously inflamed. Not knowing of his indisposition, I was on my way to visit him, as usual, one summer evening, when I was much surprised by meeting a lively leech in Field Court, Gray's Inn, seemingly on his way to the West End of London. As the leech was alone, and was of course unable to explain his position, even if he had been inclined to do so, which he had not the appearance of being, I passed him and went on. Turning the corner of Gray's Inn Square, I was beyond expression amazed by meeting another leech, also entirely alone, and also proceeding in a westerly direction, though with less decision of purpose. Ruminating on this extraordinary circumstance, and endeavouring to remember whether I had ever read in the philosophical transactions, or any work on natural history of a migration of leeches, I ascended to the top set, past the dreary series of closed outer doors of offices, and an empty set or two, which intervened between that lofty region and the surface. Entering my friend's rooms, I found him stretched upon his back, like Prometheus bound, with a perfectly demented ticket-porter in attendance on him, instead of the vulture, which helpless individual, who was feeble and frightened, and had, my friend explained to me in great choler, been endeavouring for some hours to apply leeches to his leg, and as yet had only got on two out of twenty. To this unfortunate distraction between a damp cloth on which he had placed the leeches to freshen them, and the wrathful adjurations of my friend to stick em on, sir, 
I referred to the phenomenon I had encountered. The rather as two fine specimens were at that moment going out the door, while a general insurrection of the rest was in progress on the table. After a while our united efforts prevailed, and, when the leeches came off and had recovered their spirits, we carefully tied them up in a decanter. But I never heard more of them than that they were all gone next morning, and that the out-of-door young man of Bickle, Bush, and Bodger on the ground floor had been bitten and blooded by some creature not identified. They never took on Mrs. Miggot, the laundress, but I have always preserved fresh the belief that she unconsciously carried several about her until they gradually found openings in life. Second, on the same staircase with my friend Parkle, and on the same floor, there lived a man of law who pursued his business elsewhere, and used those chambers as his place of residence. For three or four years, Parkle rather knew of him than knew him. But after that, for Englishmen, short pause of consideration, they began to speak. Parkle exchanged words with him in his private character only, and knew nothing of his business ways or means. He was a man a good deal about town, but always alone. We used to remark to one another that, although we often encountered him in theatres, concert-rooms, and similar public places, he was always alone. Yet he was not a gloomy man, and was of a decidedly conversational turn, insomuch that he would sometimes of an evening lounge with a cigar in his mouth, half in and half out of Parkle's rooms, and discuss the topics of the day by the hour. He used to hint on these occasions that he had four faults to find with life. Firstly, that it obliged a man to be always winding up his watch. Secondly, that London was too small. Thirdly, that it therefore wanted variety. Fourthly, that there was too much dust in it. There was so much dust in his own fainted chambers, certainly, that they reminded me of a sepulchre, furnished in prophetic anticipation of the present time, which had newly been brought to light after having remained buried a few thousand years. One dry, hot autumn evening at twilight, this man, being then five years turned of fifty, looked in upon Parkle in his usual lounging way, with his cigar in his mouth, as usual, and said, "'I'm going out of town.' As he never went out of town, Parkle said, "'Oh, indeed, at last. Yes,' he says, "'at last.' For what is a man to do? London is so small. If you go west, you come to Hounslow. If you go east, you come to Bow. If you go south, there's Brixton or Norwood. If you go north, you can't get rid of Barnet. Then the monotony of all the streets, 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 and of all the roads, 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 and the dust, dust, dust. When he had said this, he wished Parkle a good evening, but came back again and said, with his watch in his hand, Oh, I really cannot go on winding up this watch over and over again. I wish you would take care of it. So Parkle laughed and consented, and the man went out of town. The man remained out of town so long that his letter-box became choked, and no more letters could be got into it, and they began to be left at the lodge, and to accumulate there. At last the head-porter decided on conference with the steward to use his master-key, and look into the chambers, and give them the benefit of a whiff of air. Then it was found that he had hanged himself to his bedstead, and had left this written memorandum. I should prefer to be cut down by my neighbour and friend, if he will allow me to call him so, H. Parkle, Esquire. This was an end of Parkle's occupancy of chambers. He went into lodgings immediately. Third. While Parkle lived in Gray's Inn, and I myself was uncommercially preparing for the bar, 
which is done, as everyone knows, by having a frayed old gown put on in a pantry by an old woman in a chronic state of St. Anthony's fire and dropsy, and so decorated, bolting a bad dinner in a party of four, whereof each individual mistrusts the other. Three. I say, while these things were, there was a certain elderly gentleman who lived in court of Temple, and was a great judge and lover of port wine. Every day he dined at his club, and drank his bottle or two of port wine, and every night he came home to the temple, and went to bed in his lonely chambers. This had gone on many years without variation, when one night he had a fit on coming home, and fell and cut his head deep, but partly recovered and groped about in the dark to find the door. When he was afterwards discovered dead, it was clearly established by the marks of his hands about the room that he must have done so. Now, this chanced on the night of Christmas Eve and over him lived a young fellow who had sisters and young country friends, and who gave them a little party that night, and in the course of which they played at Blind Man's Buff. They played that game, for their greater sport, by the light of the fire only, and once, when they were all quietly rustling and stealing about, and the blind man was trying to pick out the prettiest sister, for which I am far from blaming him, somebody cried, Hark! The man below must be playing Blind Man's Buff by himself to-night. They listened and heard sounds of someone falling about and stumbling against furniture, and they all laughed at the conceit, and went on with their play, more light-hearted and merry than ever. Thus those two so different games of life and death were played out together, blindfolded, in the two sets of chambers. Such are the occurrences which, coming to my knowledge, imbued me long ago with a strong sense of the loneliness of chambers. There was a fantastic illustration, to much the same purpose, implicitly believed by a strange sort of man now dead, whom I knew when he had not quite arrived at legal years of discretion, although I was already in the uncommercial line. This was a man who, though not more than thirty, had seen the world in diverse, irreconcilable capacities, had been an officer in a South American regiment, among other odd things but had not achieved much in any way of life, and was in debt and in hiding. He occupied chambers of the dreariest nature in Lyons Inn. His name, however, was not up on the door or doorpost, but in lieu of it stood the name of a friend who had died in the chambers, and had given him the furniture. The story arose out of the furniture, and was to this effect. Let the former holder of the chambers, whose name was still upon the door and doorpost, be Mr. Testator. Mr. Testator took a set of chambers in Lyons Inn, when he had but very scanty furniture for his bedroom, and none for his sitting-room. He had lived some wintry months in this condition, and he found it very bare and cold. One night, past midnight, when he sat writing, and still had writing to do that must be done before he went to bed, he found himself out of coals. He had coals downstairs, but had never been to his cellar. However, the cellar key was on his mantel-shelf, and he went down and opened the cellar it fitted. He might fairly assume the coals in that cellar to be his. As to his laundress, she lived among the coal-wagons and Thames watermen, for there were Thames watermen at that time, in some unknown rat-hole by the river, down lanes and alleys on the other side of the strand. As to any other person to meet or obstruct him, Lyons Inn was dreaming, drunk, maudlin, moody, betting, brooding over bill-discounting or renewing, sleeper awake, minding its own affairs. Mr. Testator took his coal-scuttle in one hand, his candle and key in the other, and descended to the dismalest underground dens of Lyons Inn, 
where the late vehicles in the streets became thunderous, and all the water-pipes in the neighbourhood seemed to have Macbeth's Amen sticking in their throats, and be trying to get it out. After groping here and there among low doors to no purpose, Mr. Testator at length came to a door with a rusty padlock, which his key fitted. Getting the door open with much trouble, and looking in, he found no coals, but a confused pile of furniture. Alarmed by his intrusion on another man's property, he locked his door again, found his own cellar, filled his scuttle, and returned upstairs. But the furniture he had seen ran on casters across and across Mr. Testator's mind incessantly, when, in the chill hour of five in the morning, he got to bed. He particularly wanted a table to write at, and a table expressly made to be written at had been the piece of furniture in the foreground of the heap. When his laundress emerged from her burrow in the morning to make his kettle boil, he artfully led up to the subject of cellars and furniture, but the two ideas had evidently no connection in her mind. When she left him, and he sat at his breakfast thinking about the furniture, he recalled the rusty state of the padlock, and inferred that the furniture must have been stored in the cellars for a long time, was perhaps forgotten, owner dead, perhaps. After thinking it over a few days, in the course of which he could pump nothing out of Lyons Inn about the furniture, he became desperate, and resolved to borrow that table. He did so that night. He had not had the table long when he determined to borrow an easy chair. He had not had that long when he made up his mind to borrow a bookcase, then a couch, then a carpet, and a rug. By that time he was, in furniture, stepped in so far that he could be no worse to borrow it all. Consequently, he borrowed it all, and locked up the cellar for good. He had always locked it after every visit. He had carried up every separate article in the dead of night, and, at the best, had felt as wicked as resurrection man. Every article was blue and furry when he brought it into his rooms, and he had had, in a murderous and guilty sort of a way, to polish it up while London slept. Mr. Testator lived in his furnished rooms two or three years or more, and gradually lulled himself into the opinion that the furniture was his own. This was his convenient state of mind when, late one night, a step came up the stairs, and a hand passed over his door, feeling for his knocker, and then one deep and solemn rap was rapped that might have been a spring in Mr. Testator's easy-chair to shoot him out of it. So promptly was it attended with that effect. With a candle in his hand, Mr. Testator went to the door, and found there a very pale and very tall man, a man who stooped, a man with very high shoulders, a very narrow chest, and a very red nose, a shabby genteel man. He was wrapped in a long threadbare black coat, fastened up the front with more pins than buttons, and under his arm he squeezed an umbrella without a handle, as if he were playing bagpipes. He said, I ask your pardon, but can you tell me? He stopped, his eyes resting on some object within the chambers. Can I tell you what? asked Mr. Testator, noting his stoppage with quick alarm. I ask your pardon, said the stranger, but this is not the inquiry I was going to make. Do I see in there any small article of property belonging to me? Mr. Testator was beginning to stammer that he was not aware, when the visitor slipped past him into the chambers. There 
In a goblin way, which froze Mr. Testator to the marrow, he examined first the writing-table, and said, Mine, and then the easy-chair, and said, Mine, and then the bookcase, and said, Mine, then turned up the corner of the carpet, and said, Mine, in a word, inspected every item of furniture from the cellar in succession, and said, Mine. Towards the end of this investigation, Mr. Testator perceived that he was sodden with liquor, and that the liquor was gin. He was not unsteady with gin, either in his speech or carriage, but he was stiff with gin in both particulars. Mr. Testator was in a dreadful state, for, according to his making out of the story, the possible consequences of what he had done in recklessness and hardihood flashed upon him in their fullness for the first time. When they had stood gazing at one another for a little while, he tremulously began, Sir, I am conscious that the fullest explanation, compensation, and restitution are your due. They shall be yours. Allow me to entreat that, without temper, without even natural irritation on your part, we may have a little drop of something to drink, interposed the stranger. I am agreeable. Mr. Testator had intended to say a little quiet conversation, but with great relief of mind adopted the amendment. He produced a decanter of gin, and was bustling about for hot water and sugar, when he found that his visitor had already drunk half of the decanter's contents. With hot water and sugar, the visitor drank the remainder, before he had been an hour in the chambers by the chimes of the Church of St. Mary in the Strand, and during the process he frequently whispered to himself, "'Mine!' The gin gone, and Mr. Testator wondering what was to follow it, the visitor rose, and said, with increased stiffness, "'At what hour of the morning, sir, will it be convenient?' Mr. Testator hazarded, "'At ten. "'Sir,' said the visitor, "'at ten to the moment I shall be here.' Then he contemplated Mr. Testator somewhat at leisure, and said, "'God bless you. How is your wife?' Mr. Testator who never had a wife, replied with much feeling, deeply anxious, poor soul, but otherwise well. The visitor thereupon turned and went away, and fell twice in going downstairs. From that hour he was never heard of, whether he was a ghost, or a spectral illusion of conscience, or a drunken man who had no business there, or the drunken rightful owner of the furniture, with a transitory gleam of memory, whether he got safe home, or had no time to get to, whether he died of liquor on the way, or lived in liquor ever afterwards, he was never heard of more. This was the story, received with the furniture, and held to be as substantial by its second possessor, in an upper set of chambers in grim Lyons Inn. It is to be remarked of chambers in general, that they must have been built for chambers, to have the right kind of loneliness. You may make a great dwelling-house very lonely, but isolating suites of rooms and calling them chambers, you cannot make the true kind of loneliness. In dwelling-houses there have been family festivals, children have grown in them, girls have bloomed into women in them, courtships and marriages have taken place in them. True chambers never were young, childish, maidenly, never had dolls in them, or rocking-horses, or christenings, or betrothals, or little coffins. Let Gray's Inn identify the child who first touched hands and hearts with Robinson Crusoe in any one of its many sets, and that child's little statue, in white marble,
with a golden inscription shall be at its service, at my cost and charge, as a drinking fountain for the spirit, to freshen its thirsty square. Let Lincoln's produce from all its houses a twentieth of the procession derivable from any dwelling-house, one twentieth of its age, of fair young brides who married for love and hope, not settlements, and all the vice-chancellors shall thenceforth be kept in nosegays for nothing, on application to the writer hereof. It is not denied that on the terrace of the Adelphi, or in any of the streets that subterranean stable-haunted spot, or about Bedford Row or James Street of that ilk, a gruesome place, or anywhere among the neighbourhoods that have done flowering and have run to seed, you may find chambers replete with the accommodations of solitude, closeness, and darkness, where you may be as low-spirited as in the genuine article, and might be as easily murdered, with the placid reputation of having merely gone down to the seaside. But the many waters of life did run musical in those dry channels once. Among the inns, never. The only popular legend known in relation to any of the dull family of inns is a dark old Bailey whisper concerning Clements and importing how the black creature who holds the sundial there was a negro who slew his master, and built the dismal pile out of the contents of his strong-box, for which architectural offence alone he ought to have been condemned to live in it. But what populace would waste fancy upon such a place, or on New Inn, Staple Inn, Barnard's Inn, or any of the shabby crew? The genuine laundress, too, is an institution not to be had in its entirety, out of and away from the genuine chambers. Again, it is not denied that you may be robbed elsewhere. Elsewhere you may have, for money, dishonesty, drunkenness, dirt, laziness, and profound incapacity. But the veritable, shining, red-faced, shameless laundress, the true Mrs. Sweeney, in figure, colour, texture, and smell, like the old, damp family umbrella, the tip-top complicated abomination of stockings, spirits, bonnet, limpness, looseness, and larceny is only to be drawn at the fountain-head. Mrs. Sweeney is beyond the reach of individual art. It requires the united efforts of several men to ensure that great result, and it is only developed in perfection under an honourable society and in an inn of court. End of chapter 14 Recording by Adam Doughty, Kerry, Kerry, New Zealand.